the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. I recently uh, read a book by a pastor, now writer and speaker, who denounces the structure of the modern assembly, claiming that its roots are pagan and it hinders the free celebration and worship of God. And his premise is scriptural. He reminds us that we are one body, and we are. That's a fact. Then he goes about dismantling the local assembly as unbiblical, and seeking to prove that they are a product of man-centered religion. And there again, he has some valid points. But he seems to overlook the fact that there is structure put in place by God for the local assembly. And it is thoroughly articulated by Paul and other writers in Scripture. Part of that is attendance of the local assembly. Attendance of the local assembly is, among other things, A matter of obedience and a ministry to all who come, whether it's acknowledged or not. And what I hear is this libertine approach to the local assembly, and it is not found. That approach is not found in the early New Covenant church. In Scripture, if you read about the assembly, you see people feel privileged to be a part of it. Sacrificing everything to go. Wanting, desiring It's worshipped so much to the point that they didn't want to leave it. They were there. That's what you see in the New Covenant Fellowship. It was seen as a manifestation of the Father's love and the opportunity to gather with others to pour out worship and to receive from His hand. Now, no, we don't have to go to church to worship. But still, it is a matter of obedience and nurture. I don't have to eat at the table with my family. I can grab a burger and I can go watch a game or I can go to the movies or I can enjoy a beautiful evening out with some of my choice friends. But as that becomes a practice rather than an exception, I do injury to the family and I raise my children to do the same. And therein lies the problem. This writer is seeking to explain why there's this evacuation from the modern church. I think there are a lot of reasons. Number one, these people don't know relationship. They refuse to recognize 
that this is about Jesus and it's about our relationship with Him. So therefore, they're not deserting anything but an institution. And we can get tired of institutions, can't we? Secondly, mom and dad don't place a whole lot of priority on it anymore. Not like my dad's generation or possibly mine. So the kids don't see any value in it. And then you add in, of course, the duality of saying one thing at church and living another at home in front of your children, and they don't see any value in it at all. It makes perfect sense that the church is losing ground there, but let's not blame the structure. It's not the structure. It's the heart. The problem is that we have demonstrated this for the last two generations, and it's a problem within the young people and the young married couples of today, with the exception of ours, of course. (laughs) But when I make those choices, I show my kids that I value self-indulgence over denying the flesh and embracing what God has put in place as a blessing, and I walk away from the moorings of truth. Church attendance is not the whole emphasis of what Paul is writing here. But without, without this establishing of structure for appropriate behavior and worship in a corporate setting, and without attendance to those things, this emphasis would be unnecessary, wouldn't it? Why would Paul be continually trying to establish structure within the local body if he had no presumption that people would attend? Why would he do that? Because I'm going to tell you something. Back in the day, they presumed that everybody would attend. Even the pagans knew the value of attending assembly. Not the case. Now look, I'm not getting on the pew of anybody here, I hope. Because you're here. This is what most preachers refer to as preaching to the choir, right? But it's in there. And as we look at this structure, I don't want us just to see the building. I don't want us just to see the organization. I want you to see the Father's heart behind it. There's purpose in it. Just like there's purpose in the structure of marriage. There's purpose in the the way we raise our children. There's purpose in the teaching of Scripture. Now, get your Bibles, if you brought them, and turn over to 1 Timothy, the second chapter, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read through that. Starts out, first of all, and you might have therefore. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, specific requests, prayers, intercessions, prayers for others, and thanksgivings be offered on behalf of all people. For kings and all who are in positions of high authority, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This kind of praying is good and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who wishes all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge and recognition of the divine truth. For there is only one God and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for all. The testimony given at the right and proper time. And for this matter, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying when I say a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, depending upon what version of scripture you're looking at, you may have 
therefore, or as the Amplified has it, first of all, which should indicate that there's a continuation from chapter 1. And the question would be, from where? From where? Hopefully you will remember the context. First Timothy is what is referred to as a pastoral epistle. It is a letter of instruction to Timothy from Paul concerning the wayward assembly in Ephesus, who had embraced false teachers and even had elders in the church teaching heretical doctrine. So this church was a complete mess when Paul arrived with Timothy for a visit. So much so that Paul installed Timothy as pastor and cast out two of the church elders and then left. Now, Timothy is recorded as being somewhat timid, but even for a more hardy soul, that'd be a lot to deal with, wouldn't it? But Paul takes off, and this leaves Timothy, the timid Timothy, to do an extreme makeover from this church. Now, it was after Paul had left that he writes this letter, and in it are instructions on how the early church should conduct itself. And Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he gives Timothy a charge. We talked about that. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, so that inspired and aided by them, you might fight the good fight in contending with false teachers. In other words, Timothy, God is with you. And I want you to remember what was spoken over you, because they weren't just idle words, and Paul knows because he spoke them. I want you to understand that while your soul may be quaking with all that's before you, your God is with you. And what you're doing is God-ordained. So do not give way to fear. Latch hold with faith to the truth. And stand firm and do not allow the false teachers to diminish what you're saying. What were Paul's instructions as he begins to exhort Timothy to enter into this fight? What is the instructions concerning the good fight? How do we begin to reorder this church to align it with truth and to create an environment that will not prosper heresy? This is where we begin. Verse 1 of chapter 2. But before we look at verse 1, I want to remind you of how the church at Ephesus became vulnerable to heresy. It's real simple. They neglected their faith. They neglected their faith. We live this life by faith. And if we are not living the truth by faith, then we're trying to imitate it by flesh if we're giving it any effort at all. When we live according to the flesh, heresy is easy to embrace. They neglected the faith. They embraced a man-centered gospel. And when we validate our relationship with God via our mind, will, our emotions, we've stepped away from faith and embraced knowing God according to the flesh. And that is what religion is about, isn't it? Man's desire to know God on man's terms. And that doesn't require faith, does it? That is where heresy was birthed in Ephesus. Now let's look at verse 1. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that petitions, special requests, prayers, intercessions, prayers for others, and thanksgiving be offered 
on behalf of all people. So where does the Holy Spirit via Paul begin with this? What is the first issue that he felt like needed to be addressed? Prayer. Prayer. Now understand he is referencing public prayer or prayer within the body, within the assembly. But I want to say a few words about prayer in general that will help you to understand why it's so important to a body of believers who have drifted into carnality. It always comes back to relationship, doesn't it? Because that's what prayer is about. It's about relationship. The issue with a carnal Christian individually or corporately is that they have neglected their intimate connection with Jesus and have become distracted with the flesh and the things of the flesh, with the temporal world, with the things around them. They've set aside the truth that they're spiritual beings and this life is to be lived in the context of who we are spiritually. The evidence of this is first seen in the prayer life or the lack thereof. They become flippant. Prayer becomes ritualized. It becomes repetitive, redundant, empty. I can remember when I was teaching my oldest daughter how to pray. And I said, sweetheart, what if I came to you and said the same thing every day? How much a relationship would we have? Hello, hope you had a good day today. I'm certainly glad you're my daughter. I really appreciate all that you do around the house. I hope that you enjoy all of the food that we put before you. And we are really glad to have you here and walked away. What if I said that every day to her? How much of a relationship would we have? Well, if you were an observer, you wouldn't think we had much of one, would you? We never got off script, except when it got really bad. Then, oh Lord, right? That's when we we can get a little more free with our prayer. Because we got to gain some ground with the good Lord, right? Such a lie. Such a distortion of what God intended to be an intimate relationship. Prayer is communion. Where you enter into the Father's heart for you and for others. It should also be when you hear His voice, or to be more precise, when you perceive or know His heart. Because it is not always about words. If you're going to take the Hollywood version of prayer, then you're going to be waiting around for a while for something big and spectacular to happen. Prayer doesn't happen that way. Prayer is a quiet moment with Him. It's an intimate thing. I know sometimes when I go to visit my dad, now believe it or not, we don't just sit around and yeah, yeah. Because my dad, believe it or not, is not a huge talker. And I'm not either. You wouldn't know it to hear me, but it's true. So we'll sit together on the sofa, even without the television, thank you very much. We'll sit together on the sofa, and we may not speak two words to each other, but we recognize each other's presence. We're communing. Somebody asked me where I've been, I'd say I've been with my dad. Now, in your mind, that may apply all kinds of things. But in reality, it meant me spending time with him. And I recognize when he's troubled, and he recognizes when I'm troubled. And I know when it's time to say something. And I don't have to have a pre-prepared script. How many of you need a script to talk to your mother? 
Huh? Did you? Maybe some of you did, but that's not natural. Prayer is intimate. It's an intimate communion where we share each other's heart. And we shouldn't have to just keep blabbering at each other in order to feel that. Listening to him is what insulates us from the need to be validated by others or to follow others except when they're speaking or walking in the truth. You ever notice people, particularly nowadays, are always needing validation in everything. They can't do anything without some kind of validation. Why? Because they don't have any higher authority than the people around them. And they have no faith in who they are. And frankly, that's probably not a bad thing. The reality is that we have a God. And when I'm validated in his presence by his love and by his sovereignty, I can go forward with a confidence that the good shepherd guides and directs me. I can go forward resting in the truth of his sovereignty, knowing that he protects me and my desire is his will. I can go through forward in confidence and I don't have to run around to all the brethren and say, what do you think about that? And what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, what do you think about it? I don't have to live in that kind of mess. Validation, acceptance, everything that we need in our relationship with the Lord is experienced in prayer. And how do we experience it? By faith. Prayer is a faith thing. Do you realize that? Just saying all of the King James English towards the ceiling is not prayer. Prayer is believing that you're in before the throne of God. Prayer is believing that you have a God who listens to you, intimate in His desire to connect with you. He is hearing your every word. More than that, He is feeling your heart. I don't have to explain anything to God, believe it or not. I don't have to say, well, Lord, you know, just to make sure that he knows. All I have to do, I can, <laughs> I can rest everything before him in one word. Father, Father. It says it all, doesn't it? Listening to him is what strengthens us. And as we mature in our relationship, listening becomes the emphasis of prayer. That the longer I walk with him, the less I have to say. And that's not because I don't communicate. It's because before him, everything becomes clear and true. One of the things I know about him is that he loves me. So I don't have to spend a lot of time soliciting his love. I can rest in it. I know that he provides for me. So I don't have to spend a whole lot of time begging him to be my provision. And I know that he is protecting me. So I don't have to name everybody that I hope he's protecting. I don't have to go through these long lists of things. And it's not that those things, that that is such a struggle for me. It's just unnecessary. And my petitions have become Less and less and less because I don't have to say, Father, I really have to have that job. I really do have to have that job. Lord, I hope you're clearing away from me to have that job. What do I know? What do I know? I am barking before the Lord with the perceptions of my flesh, with a weak, frail brain of the flesh. I am telling him. 
Doesn't he know what I need? That's what I mean by my prayers are getting shorter. But my communion is becoming longer moment by moment. That's what we need to walk in. That's the truth of prayer. If we've not trained our souls to rest before him, then it will be difficult. If we've trained our souls to ignore him, we may believe that he doesn't speak to us. But in fact, he has become kind of like the squeak in the ceiling fan that we don't hear anymore, but everybody else notices. Do not let your prayer be just about you. It needs to be just about him. A distracted soul in prayer does not invalidate prayer. Rather, it calls on our faith to determine to keep him as your focus. Now, these are just some general thoughts on prayer for the individual Christian. But you can see how corporately it becomes part of worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Because if you're participating in this time of worship, then you right now are communing with him. You're not listening to me, you're listening to Him. That is where this becomes a ministry. The very ministry of Christ. That is what the church is about. That's what the assembly is about. And that is the structure that is in place. Now, Paul has named several different emphases in prayer. And he's putting forth a structure for corporate prayer. Now, the first emphasis are petitions or supplications, which the Amplified has translated as specific requests. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it is a Greek word that comes from a root word that means to fall in with someone or to draw near to speak intimately to them. That kind of reminds me of, you know, you're with a friend and you got people around you and you really need something from them. You pull into them and you share your need with them. That's the context of it. Petitions are not you thinking of everything like a Christmas list. Because you don't know. You don't really understand your needs. A petition is, Father, this is heavy upon my heart. And I don't know how necessary it is, but I bring it before you. And I say, Thy will be done. Whatever you desire, Father, that's what I desire. I'm made for you. The next word he uses is just prayer in general. But the interesting thing about this word, and it's used throughout the New Testament, is that it is exclusive towards God. It's almost like your special language. You remember in high school, people come up with these stupid languages so they could talk privately. Well, this is like your special languages. And I know the charismatics have talked about a prayer language. Well, prayer language is anything that God will hear. And he hears everything. All right. And then the next word, the third word, is intercessions, which the Amplified translates as prayer for others. Now, it's an interesting word because at one time it referred to petitions that are presented to a legal authority. It could also reference coming before royalty. And then we have Thanksgiving, and every one of us know what that's about. You know, Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. 
Because one man that knows how to pray and stays in intimate connection with the Father preaches out of his very life rather than out of what he learned. Then Paul writes that these are to be given on behalf of all people. Then Paul continues in this thought in verse 2. He says, For kings and all who are in positions of high authority, so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this is interesting that he writes this because Paul is advocating prayer for Nero, the emperor, who eventually executed Peter and Paul. He was a bloodthirsty emperor who tortured and killed Christians for sport. This is who he's advocating prayer for. Now, it's Paul telling us that if we pray for those who rule over us, we will be free from persecution and trouble. And I hear a lot of that. And I can't believe it. Don't these people know anything about the Bible? Well, I got to say, if that is the case, that economy didn't work out well for most of the New Testament saints, including Jesus, Peter, and Paul. The peace that he is referencing is a tranquil stillness that we have before God. It is the peace that is found in our relationship with God. This is about resting in the sovereignty of God, trusting that you are kept safe in who you are. Praying in this way recognizes the sovereignty of God above all other authority and gives you the freedom to lift them up. You're not threatened by them. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road, and Blanco Woods, just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.